The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Isaiah 38, 1-8 In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. Isaiah 39 At the time Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. And you say, amen. Uh, well, we are grateful for God's word and that we get to continue in our series through the book of Isaiah. Um, and remember, we titled this series, Yahweh Saves. Uh, we need his salvation. And that is because his kingdom needs to reign here on earth. And that's what we, that's what we hope for. Um, we hope for that. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want us to deal with, um, with God's deliverance and what his salvation means for his people. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, if you want to know more about Downtown Church, we ask that you just text 624-88. Um, we'll give you more information later in the service. But before we dive into God's word, let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your wonderful mercy, your uh, miraculous grace that falls upon us every, every single day. Um, you are the everlasting God, as we've uh, sang already. 
And I pray, God, that we continue to wait on you. We continue to have a hope and anticipation um, for you and you alone. We pray this. uh, and, And, Lord, we also pray that you use your word right now to speak to your people. Uh, Someone is hurting and broken. Someone needs your hope. uh, They need to hear your word. And I pray that you use me um, to be your vessel. Allow all of my uh, my mental space that will distract me from communicating. Let that be out the way. Uh, I pray, God, that your words go forth and not Michael Davis. For it is in Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people said together. Amen. Uh, Let me ask you a question. If, If you were to write and or state the final words before death, what would those words be? If you were to write your own eulogy now, how would you like people to remember you? What would you like for people to say about you? How would you like your family and friends to uh, think about the legacy that you may want to leave on this earth? Or if you're in a position of trying to inform someone, maybe a family or maybe a person of a terminal illness, how would you communicate that to someone? Do you gloss over the harsh reality of death or do you provide some form of hope? Because here it is, death is unpreventable. One's life may be pro- might be prolonged through some form of medical imp- um, intervention, but there is never a good time to inform someone of the inevitable. There's never a good time to tell someone that they, their life will expire. And in our passage, I see Isaiah delivering the devastating news, the inevitable news to Hezekiah that death was imminent. Hezekiah prayed and cried before God. This is where we are in our text right here in chapter 38. He prayed before God, begging and pleading with God to spare his life. It's important to note that as we have already talked about in uh, Michael Rhodes preached last week about uh, chapter 36 and 37, um, the end of the reign of Hezekiah, we are right here at a space where Isaiah gives us a predated text that actually shows Hezekiah's illness that had come up while the Assyrian army was attacking the people of Israel. And Hezekiah, in his prayer to God, he would probably see himself as being successful in pleading with God because God then added 15 years to his life. Brief summary should be popping up on your screen as to what we will see, or what you will see in the chapters, in chapters 38 and 39. You see that Hezekiah's illness and recovery in the journal of his thoughts right there Um, seen as a psalm or a song as he faced death and as he was healed. And you see the the ambassadors of the um, people of Babylon, where Merodach Baladon had sent his ambassadors to acknowledge his recovery. In that, I want us to understand that Isaiah just didn't place a random text in the middle of the story. He's trying to cue us. He's trying to help the people of Israel to see maybe a behind-the-scenes situation from the king of of Israel. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does this narrative teach us? King who has reigned for 29 years, and those 29 years included the 15 years that God had added, 
What is God trying to demonstrate or what is God trying to teach the people of God as we read this Bible? And what was he trying to teach the original audience as they look at this text? I think what God may be trying to teach the people of God is something that is that has been perpetual throughout the Old Testament narrative. And I think something that we can add to our lives, that God's response, big idea, God's God responds to his people. And so that we must call on him according to his promises. God responds to his people so that we must call on him according to his promises. We see time and time again throughout the narrative uh, so far of chapter one through chapter 39 coming up on 40 that the people of God did not always call on God according to his promise. If you know your biblical theology, you know God has allowed promises and his faithful word to go forth to the people of God to remind them of the covenant that he has made with them. And if, if we can just take a thought of what happened in the Exodus and how God promised deliverance, we can just take the, the, what happened in Genesis and how God promised deliverance. Uh, we can look at what happened when the people were suffering in the wilderness and God promised deliverance. There's a consistent theme in which God promises and he fulfills those promises. But I want you to know something, because when we think about King Hezekiah, we have to think about a king who, of, unlike other kings, was truly human. I think we can relate to him in the way that he ruled. He was one whose heart was genuine towards the Lord, but yet he was fickle under pressure and under the temptations of life. In fact, we see that Hezekiah cared more about himself than others. Once Isaiah informed him of his death, uh, he essentially said, please don't let me die. I don't want to die when you look at verses two through three, but in hearing that his sons will be captured and made eunuchs serving Babylon. His, Babylon, his response was poor. He says, there will be peace in my lifetime. Caring nothing for his children who will be captive. Caring nothing about the nation who may be pillaged and held in exile. Because he was restored. But I think during his reign, and in his lifetime, the incredible work that he did to bring the temple of God back to full restoration, the reform that he brought to the community of the covenant community of God's people was amazing. Although he did it with the help of God, he restored worship when the, when the ancestors allowed paganism to rule uh, amongst the people of Israel. Now, I want you to think about that. A man who is ruling a nation under, the, under a, theology, a theodicy it has restored and brought true worship back to God. You can read this in, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 19 and 20. You can also read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 where you see his implementation of worship. But that's not what I believe we should, we should focus on this morning necessarily. There's just a recap of who Hezekiah is and what he has done. Small, uh, a small uh, recap of his resume. But here's what I think. Two points 
that I think we should look at in chapters 38 and 39 is that God, we call on God in moments of despair, desperation and despair. And here's what we also must do. Trust in God's promises and not in cheap politics. So we must call on God in, in moments of desperation and despair. And then I want us to also focus on not to be, that we must trust in God's promises and not cheap politics. What do I mean by and what I believe, what do I think the narrative teaches us when we say we ought to call on God in moments of desperation and despair? Well, we see a distressed nation and a diseased king. We see a distressed nation and a diseased king. Once again, you can cross-reference this historical account in Kings chapter 20, where you will see that the people of Israel, it's well documented, are being attacked by Assyria. Hezekiah had been pleading the nation by sending gold and silver for the temple. And in the middle of Hezekiah's, uh, in the middle of this attack, Hezekiah fell to his illness. So here it is, a king who is offering gold and silver that was actually supposed to be offered to the people of Israel and offered to God. He is giving it to those that attack him. Look at what Hezekiah is doing, falling under pressure. But his disease crippled him and it caused him to be disillusioned from the God that he actually worshiped and the God that is the God of his ancestors who's demonstrated his power. And God once again demonstrates his power and authority by the way that he not only delivers a distressed nation, but he also delivers a, a diseased king. Now, there's so many ways that we can look at that in a figurative sense, but I want us to continue to look at the fact that when Hezekiah, in the narrative, turned and faced the wall, which when they say this was some form in which uh, a, when you were in the temple, you turned and faced the wall as some type of Christ when you prayed, what he was doing was pleading to God as tears streamed down his face as a man who knew his weakness and his demise was upon him, distressed when he prayed and diseased when he prayed. He appealed to God according to the faithful walk that he had with God and his wholehearted devotion to God. Restoring the worship in the community, making sure that the people of God knew that God was God and God alone. You can hear prayers of Hezekiah throughout the Bible. He was no stranger to the prayers because when he received threatening letters from Sennacherib, he went to pray. And when he hurried to the temple, he prayed for deliverance because he did not know how he was going to save his own nation, which when you think about it, was between the Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and Egypt, there lie, there was Judah that is that was placed in a strategic way for good trades and good economic growth. And so to take over a nation like that was to help the Assyrian or any other community thrive in their nation. Once again, he was no stranger to prayer. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 19, he prayed, he said, so now, Lord. And receiving bad news, he says, so now, oh, Lord, our God, say, save us, please, from his hand. Whose hand? The king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth, not just 
their kingdom, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that that you, O Lord, are God alone. Listen to what God says. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. Just a brief moment. I want you to know that God hears the prayers of his people. And he sees you weeping in solitude. God hears the praises of his people. And he sees you weeping as you pray. To know that God sees you in the midst of your distress, in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your desperation, is a God who cares deeply about his people. And he cares about his, his people, his person, this person, Hezekiah. And so what does he do? He grants him an additional 15 years and he sends him a sign by moving the shadow, turning the dial of the sun, which means moving the shadow so that Hezekiah would know that it was God doing the work because God creates, he controls all of creation. So who are you calling on in the midst of desperation and despair? You're calling on a God that is sovereign over absolutely everything. But how does this work? How does this help you for Monday? What does this mean for you when you clock in to work? What does this mean when you're waking up and you're fixing breakfast, breakfast for your kids or you're, you're overwhelmed about the week and what's to come? Our calling on God in the moment of desperation and despair indicates that we know God, we know the character of God. If you were to do anything in this season of your life, I would ask you to to get to know the names of God, memorize them, know them, because when you understand the character of someone, you call them according to their competencies. I won't call my son and ask him to fix or change my oil. I'm going to call my mechanic. I won't call my doctor and ask him to change the plumbing in my house. I'm going to call a plumber. I won't call the plumber and ask him to help me uh, with roadside assistance or financial planning. I'm going to call a, a state form or I'm going to call a financial advisor in order to help me. You know the person's capabilities by the way that you call them, but you don't call them to do something out of their expertise. Why? Because it shows that they're incapable, but God is not incapable. He's sovereign, and therefore, there is nothing that he cannot do. When you understand that there is nothing that God cannot do, like Hezekiah, you will call on him and be acquainted with his character because you've seen God move in your life. Not just in troubled times, but in moments where you have rejoiced. But here you see that Hezekiah is not confused about what God is going to do. He pleads and calls upon God. Because he knows he can change his situation. If my encouragement for you on Monday is this, is that you call on God in the midst of your, your confusion because you should know that God will guide you. You should call on God in moments of doubt because you know God will give you wisdom generously. You, you should call on God in moments where you are weak because his grace is sufficient enough in your weakness. You should call on God when you are troubled in your heart because you know that God will comfort you 
in the midst of your trouble. You should call on God when you are struggling with your own sins because he is the one that can rescue you, but he is also the one that can forgive you of your sins. This is why you should call on God, but you should know him and know the reason. And this is what Hezekiah does. He is not overwhelmed, nor is the people of Israel overwhelmed. Uh, well, no, they know that they're overwhelmed and they know they're overpowered. The fact of the matter is they know that they can call on God to rescue them. The Old Testament gives us a portrait of God being the deliverer and our salvation. So even as Hezekiah continues to write in verses 9 through 20, what begins, what we begin to see is how he described his despair. You can see it right there. I'll just read a couple of the verses starting at verse 10. In the middle, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. Right. You skip right down to verse 13. He says, I called, I calmed myself until morning like a lion. He breaks my bones. Who is he? He's talking about God. From the day to night, you bring me to an end. He describes God in a, in a sense to where God is actually being the one that is pushing the pressure and pommeling, uh, pommeling him in the middle of his affliction. And he is suffering this deep and dark uh, sickness and illness that's causing him to feel like God is nowhere to be found. But I want you to see that right in the middle of him describing what got his despair, he also describes his thanksgiving for God saving his life. Now, now, you have to think to yourself, well, what does this have to do with me? Do I create my own psalm? Do I write my own song? Do I plead to God and turn to something to pray to him? I, I don't. Or you may be saying I, there's nothing that I need to pray to God. I'm not in a desperate situation. I'm not in despair. I'm just a little frustrated. But I think God helps us because this is not so much about Hezekiah as it is about God continually, continuously being with his people and reminding his people that he will always be there because he is a God that stands on his promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a promise. And so here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the moments where you have assumed that God hasn't listened to you for years because you haven't seen immediate change. And then in a figurative sense, I want you to look at the things in your life that you have deemed as dead, as dead things that God cannot restore, that God cannot give life to. And then I want you to look at God's track record. One who has consistently delivered, has consistently, according to his will, consistently intervened, interceded, on behalf of the people of God. This is the God that you may know. You should know. And some of us in downtown church, our family members, we have suffered some of the dark and deep aspects of despair and desperation. Some this week, some of our family members, some of our uh, D.C. family have lost family members. And those pains and sufferings uh, also oftentimes seem like they are unsurvivable. That you can't continue to survive the pain and the suffering every day. And this suffering can constrain your faith 
to the unknown, to unknown limits, to where you don't know how far you can continue to believe in God, how far you can continue to trust in him as you go through situation upon situation. There's no way to beautify the horrors of pain when grief and sorrow. But it's important for you, beloved, to know as you suffer with Christ, as opposed to without Christ, the burden is far more easy. It's far more light. That's what I can say with confidence. It's in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side. On every single side, we are hard pressed, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. So when you think about what Paul is saying here is it's that God is in control amidst the moments that that you seem perplexed, the moments that you seem where you're hard pressed, the, the moments where you're persecuted, the moments where you're struck down. But look at what he is saying. You're not crushed because God has you. You're not perplexed because God gives you guidance. You're not the one that is actually in despair. You're not the one that is going to fall to the pressures of uh, despair because God has not forsaken you. And trust me, he has not destroyed you because he loves you. And I believe this is what Hezekiah felt. I think this is what a desperate, a desperate nation felt, a God that loved them. But the question is, how long did they appreciate or value the deliverance and the salvation that God had given them? That's why I said, I want you to think about this for Monday. Because I guarantee whenever you watch this, whenever you tune into this, you will struggle and wrestle with the thoughts of what if God will destroy me? What if my situation will crush me? What if I'm overly perplexed by what comes my way because I'm weak? I want to affirm the fact you are weak. But it is God who hears the cries and the prayers of his people and that is where you are strong. Not strong on your own, but when you're dependent upon God. Allow your prayers to be full of dependency upon God. Allow those moments of solitude not simply to be exercises that you use for uh, just moments of self-care, but allow them, allow God into those situations where he can begin to mend and restore and allow you to recover from the hardships of life. And then those who are looking at this right now and saying, I don't, I don't have any hardships. I want to encourage you to, I've, I've done this a couple weeks ago, and I think I, I, I can't harp on this enough. I want you to call four or five people that you don't know in the congregation uh, that closely and just see how they're doing. Ask them how they're dealing with isolation. Ask them, ask a teacher how they're struggling or dealing with the classroom situation. Ask some people that you know that are in administration how they're wrestling through some of the hardship. Ask some of uh, your 
my, uh, black and brown brothers, how they are wrestling with some of the racial trauma that's going on in our society. Because here's the thing. I don't want you to think that since you are not dealing with something, that somebody else is not dealing with something. That's the selfish part. That when you are not dealing with desperation and despair, when you're not dealing with disease and distress, you can then say, well, that's not my struggle right now. That's not what I'm going through right now. So that's not what I need to hear. You do need to hear it because you need to be able to have a word for a brother and or sister who may be wrestling and struggling with what's going on today. And this is where I believe um, part of chapter 39, we see Hezekiah acting selfishly. See, the, the, the point is trusting God's promises and not cheap or I would say deceptive uh, politics. And the reason being is because when you think about what Hezekiah is, has been greeted by these Babylonian diplomats, they've come and they have had previous uh, communication as they, they had a mutual enemy in Assyria. And you see Hezekiah who has considered a, some form of re, some formal relationship to assist with military protection over time. And so what happens here is that Morat, Mo, um, uh, uh, <laughs> his name is blanking from right now, uh, Morat, Modoc Belladon, excuse me, the king of Babylon, had sent his ambassadors to give uh, King Hezekiah gifts as he recovered. But these gifts were political gifts. These gifts were not gifts simply because he wanted to make sure that this king was okay. And Hezekiah, in his foolish and naive ways, entertained the Babylonian uh, um, ambassadors by showing them around his entire place and palace, a compound. And when he did, he was providing intel and important information that makes them vulnerable, but also entices them. And look at what Isaiah asked. He said, what did these men say? Where did they come from? What have they seen in the house? Please note that the Bible does not say that Hezekiah answered the first question of what they said. He totally ignored it because it may have been concealed a concealed agenda. Hezekiah only looking for himself. Selfish king. But after Hezekiah, went, I mean, Isaiah told him, foretold the Babylonian captivity. I want you to think about or read again what Isaiah, how he responded. A poor response further demonstrated that he did not desire to pass on the praise of Yahweh that he vowed to do in chapter 39, verse 13. Listen, listen what he says in the second part. The father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Does he do that? Absolutely not. And this is evident because King Hezekiah did not put into his son Manassas, that same discipleship that was necessary as he was going to take over the nation. So Manassas, what does he do? He becomes an evil king, an idolat- a king that continues to push the, the idols of paganism in the nation of Israel, reversing the worship to God. How, again, how does this apply? What does this mean? Beloved, I think we learn from Hezekiah that our self-centeredness 
and self-satisfaction and self-aggrandizement are the impetus oftentimes for one's motivation, then it overrides a genuine godly desire to see the people of God thrive. Our self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, and self-aggrandizement gets in the way of us actually seeing the people of God thrive and actually standing on the promises of God so that the people of God will be reminded of his faithfulness. This is the tension that we have today. With a heightened level of, of strife within communities, unity of the church due to this political season we're in. Many of us have self-centered, self-satisfying, and self-aggrandizing views in which we want our political agenda to be met. Several individuals are not looking forward to the political landscape. And there are many who are apathetic, many who have their own agendas. But here's the point. That in the moment of cheap or deceptive aspects of politics, this is what we see from Babylon, wanting to, to woo a nation in in order to take them over. I think we can be wooed in our own nation by accepting ideologies that say that we are a Christian nation and thinking and assuming that Christians should live under a Christian nation. The nation that we should live and desire is the kingdom of God. His principles and his promises. Does that mean that we have no responsibility as Christians? No, that does not mean that. It simply means that God's promises and his kingdom supersede cheap and deceptive politics. And I don't want you to think that I'm talking about some cheap piety. And that cheap piety oftentimes can be that whatever you believe and try to make coincide with God's promises in your politics oftentimes are not God-centered. Oftentimes, they're self-centered. So the deception is, is that you believe that what you genuinely are trying to vote for is genuinely what God desires. I want to encourage you to take civic and community responsibility by voting. But I also want you to know that what God desires is that his covenant community is vow, will vow to one another and stand on the vows to one another no matter what happens in November. That is what I believe we could all stand together and say we have a candidate who is, G, who is the king of kings, who is the Lord of lords. And that is the one that we know who will be able to allow his promises to flourish. And yet at the same time, we can deal with the tensions that we have with what happens here on earth. So. I also want to encourage this is the way that we look at spiritual leadership should not be the way that we deal with politics. So many people are listening and reading and listening and reading various blogs and podcasts and YouTubes, several different streams and forms of media that you're being inundated with 
by your favorite preacher or your favorite theologian or your favorite pundit or your favorite political candidate or political party. You are inundated with information to affirm whatever ideology that you want to concede to. I want to reassure the people of God that don't allow yourselves to be ruled and swayed by spiritual leadership that's not holding on to or standing on the promises of God. That's what we ought to trust in. Because we don't want kings and leaders to lead us astray and only care for themselves in their own agenda like Hezekiah. So when we come to the table this morning, I want you to know that the king, our Lord Jesus, he died. And when he died, he made it clear that his life was a sacrifice for you. And that his sacrifice was a sacrifice because our main point this morning. God responded to the despair and the need of his people according to his promise in Genesis 3.15. And that's what we stand on. So will you grab your, your elements? Because as we continue to worship God, we're going to come back and celebrate that communion together. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you. You're our everlasting father. You're our God. You're our king. And Lord, I pray that we continue to hold on and trust in your promises. That Lord, no matter if we are in a moment of desperation and despair, we still call on you. And God, we still think about one another. God, I think that we can learn that what we read in your Bible teaches us to be a whole lot more selfless than selfish. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that we die to ourselves daily, mortifying our flesh that tells us that we are more valued than we think that we uh, that we value that we that we're more valued than we expect ourselves to be because of our own desires. But Lord, we're valued because you created us, you made us in your image and your likeness, and we have that because we are your children. And I pray, Lord, that we hold to it. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. All God's people said together, Amen. Listen, beloved, let us continue to worship God in our giving. Uh, If you um, would just text downtown church, all lowercase, it would be right on your screen at 7, can you all hear me? Uh, At 73256. Downtown church, all lowercase, at 73256. All right, let us continue to worship God in our giving.